This time on Watchers of Tomorrow, a movie about coding that doesn't involve hackers. Hello everyone, welcome to Watchers of Tomorrow, the sci-fi review philosophy something or other show that I don't have an intro for. I am Gepwin and I am joined as always by my good friend and co-host Dr. Izix. Hi! And if you came here for Star Trek, you can listen to our other 30 some odd episodes. Yep, except for like three. Yeah. Because <laughs> <laughs> this is episode 40 and... We do this thing every 10 episodes just to keep things interesting, if you're not familiar, where we switch over to a sci-fi movie or one-off something or other, just so we don't get bored watching a TV show all the way through every week. Yeah, it lets us break it up a bit and uh, you know, lets us uh, you know, jump out of the tropes that we're used to in that show and uh, you know, maybe get something a little bit more modern, maybe a little something you know, even before Star Trek at some point, uh, or you know, something that's kind of weird in different ways. <laughs> This one is more modern, but still less modern, because it came out in 1977, which was, at this point, over uh, 20 years ago. Uh, you mean 1997, not 77? Yes, 1997. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, the architecture's kind of from the 70s. Uh, the architecture is from the 60s. Anyway, uh, br brutal architecture, we can talk about that later. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, it's part of the style of the movie. Yes, very much so. So, watching 1997's Gattaca, spelled with way too many A's and T's. A little bit, but you know, if you if you just sort of put put the uh, you know your mouth mouth to the task, you can actually get through it. It's a fine. This movie is now a kind of sci-fi classic. It was overshadowed hugely by uh, Titanic coming out the same year. Whoops. I shake my fist at Titanic, just in general, but you know. <laughs> well, it was it was up against Titanic for best production, like best art direction in the Oscars, and Titanic won, even though I personally think Gattaca has much better art direction overall. Oh, most, most certainly, yeah. It's, it's much more uh, you know interesting to look at. It's a lot more, uh, you know, I guess, uh, reason and good uh, you know, application of the, the art of filmmaking here. Yeah, I was surprised. A lot of this movie is very slow, very mm -hmm. exposition heavy. There's a lot of kind of just voiceover dialogue happening. Actually, for the first half hour. <laughs> yeah, it's just the entire first half hour. It um, really was just, it moved along very well just because it was shot beautifully. It like The director really knows what he's doing. It has like interesting camera work, good theming, very, very beautiful set design. The, uh, the director, uh, such as him is uh, Andrew Nicole, I think is pronounced. Yes, who also wrote it, writer-director, uh, best known for winning a ton of awards for writing The Truman Show. Ah, didn't uh, catch that bit. It's actually not dissimilar, weird near-future dystopia based on current uh, technological trends. Yes, and uh, he's uh, you know, written a number of other things, uh, some of these I've heard of. Uh, one of them is coming out, I guess, later this year. Gemini Man. Oh yeah, that sounds vaguely familiar. Yeah, that's uh, it's the Will Smith is like cloned movie. Oh okay, which might be related to today's episode. <laughs> <laughs> 
and that there's genetics involved. Anyway. <laughs> yeah, though, we'll get into it later, but there's surprisingly less genetics involved in this movie than I remembered. Yeah, it's it's less explicit genetics, but more eugenics. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I'd seen this movie once a while ago, and then the person that I watched it with uh, hadn't seen it at all so that's like i was passingly familiar i i remembered the basic premise and i was trying to explain it before we started watching it and i was like i remember that it's about a like gene engineering and a guy who's not gene engineered and then i don't remember where the actual conflict comes in <laughs> I'd, I'd forgotten the entire reason that the plot moves forward i just remembered the basic premises of the film <laughs> The, the the points of tension, the, you know the uh, you know, the the I think when I first saw it, it was probably the early two thousands. I think I was in college at the time, because I remember like had I had seen uh, like previews for it, but I never saw it in theaters, which you know maybe one of the reasons it didn't so well didn't do so well there. Um, but it um, yeah you know, I I did remember the uh, the uh, the general tension points there, the the things that moved the plots around, but I honestly didn't remember you know other details that I think I probably should have so. <laughs> Yeah, it's it's very layered. Like even I watched it twice to do the synopsis right in a row, and it, it I was catching things the second time that I hadn't actually noticed, even though they were things that characters were explicitly saying in dialogue. Yep. Though <laughs> well, this uh, movie is starring a lot of people that you have heard of because it is a star-studded cast. Yes just didn't do oh. very well <laughs> so should we start at the top yes we have ethan hawk playing vincent anton freeman and the name thing i just i'm sticking with one name for every character just good idea. to keep it simple <laughs> uma thurman playing irene cassini some sort of italian scientist yeah i guess we never actually hear her last name so i think that's how you say it <laughs> yes Jude Law playing Jerome Monroe, or Morrow. I think it's Morrow. <laughs> Morrow. Morrow, yes. Lauren Dean as Anton Freeman. And a couple of... Uh, I should have written down the doctor's name. I didn't. He was named Xander something. Xander Berkeley. <laughs> there we are. Yeah, I half remembered it. There's also uh, you know, a few smaller roles, uh, like uh, director Joseph with Gorda Fidel. Uh, Ernest Borgnine is Caesar, the janitor manager, I guess, guy. Uh, yeah, there's like just a bunch of other folks. Yeah, there's a few other. There's Tony Shalhoub, who I was excited to see show up. I always like oh, watching yeah. Tony Shalhoub. He's a unnamed character. Apparently his name was German, but he's never named in the movie. And Alan Arkin is Detective Hugo, and Gore Vidal is Director Joseph. But those are other, like, those are main but side characters. So, names you might remember, but, you know, they're not. Uh, core to the to the main action just on the rant on the like dumb trivia side of the thing this movie like barely made half of its budget it's so sad yeah it it cost um, according to the wikipedia and some other things that i read it cost 36 million dollars to make and made 12,000 or 12 million dollars at the box office yeah that's really too bad yeah it's not even it's so good it's very good. I had a list. I should have kept that up. I had a list of the things that it was coming out against, and they're all movies that you remember, uh, which is why it probably didn't do very well. 
All right. As with movies, this is going to take a little longer than normal, so we probably should have started into the synopsis already, but here we go. Go for it, Gapwin. We open with a couple of fairly apt quotes that I'm not going to bother to quote. You can watch the movie yourself. And then we are treated to a very nice, surreal opening sequence that is extreme close-ups of nails and hair falling slowly to the ground. Don't forget the flakes of skin. Yes, which they had to build. They built big models of hair and fingernails and skin and dropped them for the slow motion filming. Neat. (laughs) I don't know how big, but they built like oversized models of these things. Which I guess kind of explains why it looks so good. We find this to be a part of the morning routine as a man that we will be introduced to as Jerome. This includes him shaving very closely, exfoliating all of his skin, cutting and combing his hair inside of a incinerator that he has in his home. You know, he actually turns it on when he's all done with it. It's like, oh yes, now it's now on fire. He also collects bags of urine, blood, fills little fake fingertip caps with little pieces of blood, a bunch of stuff that you would not normally think of as a morning preparation routine. Yes, this is all a little suspicious. We learn several things about Jerome as he goes to work in the not-too-distant future, where DNA verification and drug screenings are just commonplace at work. I I was going to do a uh, na-na-na thing at the end of the not-too-distant future, but um, yes, this is a little more serious than that. But it does just pop up the not-too-distant future. Yes. (laughs) We learn he is obsessively clean, exemplary at his job, and that he works as an astronaut that will be leaving for Titan, the moon of Saturn, in about one week. He's like Super Navigator guy. He's also obsessed with watching rocket launches and space things, but pretends not to care, which is a fact that some of his co-workers comment upon. He also is not, in point of fact, Jerome. (gasps) Gasp! We get a fairly long but interesting exposition scene in which we are introduced to Vincent, a man who was born into a world where genetic manipulation is commonplace, but he was born naturally, which was very, very uncommon for the time period. So his parents actually made Whoopi as opposed to went to a lab. At his birth, he was genetically tested to determine not only his intelligence, but his future mental health and even cause of death, which will be heart failure sometime in his early 30s. That seems like a very kind of sucktastic life, guy. Um, uh, good luck, kid. Uh, hmm. This fact even shames his father into not wanting him to have his name, but instead naming him Vincent after no one. Hmm. Well. Vincent is seen as weak and fragile because of his natural birth, constantly protected by his parents. When they decide to have a second child, they conceive his brother through what is now the normal genetic screening tests where they give him the best possible chance and future at life yeah there's a uh, you know it's a brief scene where the the parents are speaking with the genesis doctor guy and you know and it's like yes yeah, selecting for dark hair fair skin says the black guy <laughs> Yeah, I noticed that. I was gonna. I couldn't fit it into the thing. I, he like fair skin and then laughs and kind of gives them a smile. Of course. I loved that character. Yeah. <laughs> they name his brother after his father, Anton. Vincent and Anton are naturally competitive and like to challenge each other to a game of swimming chicken where they go out as far from shore as they possibly can before they have to turn back. This game is something that Vincent always loses. Yeah, because, uh, 
We, we catch on, you know, by this point that Vincent is definitely not growing as fast as his brother. You know, is physically weaker, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. You know, it's sort of all done by visual stuff. Vincent develops a love of space and dreams of becoming an astronaut, but this is a dream that is impossible for him because of his natural genetic weakness. You're already dinged, kid. This is apparently a new type of bias that exists in this future called genoism, like racism. Are we paying attention? Yep. <laughs> Vincent continues to push himself, however, eventually being able to even beat his own brother at, this, at their swimming chicken game. In fact, even having to turn back and save his brother from drowning. And this is the, uh, the last time they do this before uh, Vincent leaves home. Yes, he runs away, but with his inferior genetics, it is impossible for him to have a career, just a series of minimal wage migrant jobs, including being a janitor at Gattaca, the space agency where he has always dreamed of working. It's sort of a, uh, yeah, an underclass sort of situation that he's unable to escape from. In fact, the new underclass. I am a member of what has become the new underclass. Divisions of race and other things no longer matter in a world where everyone is white. Yep. <laughs> I was going to comment on, on that later, but yes. It's something we're going to get into after the fact, because I think it's more, it, it's actually, I thought about the other day reading something about how racist this movie is, and it's actually kind of an interesting point. He decides that the only way he's ever going to achieve his lifelong dream is to take very, very drastic action. He contacts a man who we don't learn the name of, but is apparently German, a specialist who matches people with altered genetics with someone who for one reason or another wants to take their identity something called a borrowed ladder in this case vincent is matched with a man named jerome an olympic swimmer who was paralyzed and is now confined to a wheelchair so uh jerome cannot go to space maybe vincent can jerome has what is described as a perfect genetic whatever they call it uh, fingerprint template, um, template yeah, something fingerprints, you know uh, um helix they use a lot of words his perfect genetic linkedin profile <laughs> vincent is given contacts to fix his eyesight and change his eye color he gets a haircut to style himself more like jerome and they even have to give him surgery to make him several inches taller like actual like we're doing this in your bathroom sort of surgery yes they break his legs and then splint them this is this is a real surgery that people now do kind of frightening yeah it's pretty horrific it is sometimes medically necessary i suppose often it's done as sort of a cosmetic surgery type thing but it's a very very extreme one that most people don't attempt yeah i don't think not for me he also has to start writing with his non-dominant hand because he is left-handed and apparently no one wants those anymore during this time, we learn that Jerome is very, very bitter because he is supposed to be a perfect genetic specimen, but at one point in his life, he won a silver medal for swimming instead of gold. The fact that he throws in Vincent's face, telling him that if he can't succeed, how could Vincent ever expect to? Because uh, Jerome Morrow is not to come in second place. He's not supposed to be one step down on the podium. Vincent uses his newly purchased identity as Jerome to achieve his dream job as an astronaut, which brings us back to the present, where there has just been a murder at Gattaca. Oh no, a murder most foul. The police investigate, which apparently simply involves vacuuming every surface in sight. Yeah, because when you have uh, ubiquitous uh, genetic testing it basically everywhere... Uh, the cops are like, yeah, we're just going to go pick up, see if there's anybody that shouldn't have been here. 
you know, just by vacuuming everything. We meet Irene at this point, who is given a lot of somewhat menial tasks to do that will interrupt her work, proving that while there is mostly genetic discrimination, sexism is still pretty rampant. Like, okay, yeah, you, you'll still be in good shape here, Irene, but also do everything the detectives want you to, yeah. Since this helping the police has left her alone in the office, she takes the opportunity to steal a bit of hair from Vincent's workspace that we saw him leave there earlier, on purpose. Yoink. She takes this hair to a genetic testing booth where people seem to be able to size up potential romantic partners via their DNA. Yes, in fact, uh, there's the lady like at the uh, booth before her is uh, getting her mouth swapped because she had just kissed a guy. Yeah, so apparently non-consensual genetic screening is perfectly legal and fine and can be done on any street corner. Yes, and it's quite rampant and popular. Vincent and Jerome have a night out showing that they've actually become fairly close over the past few years of identity stealing, so that's good. They get along. They're celebrating Vincent's upcoming space mission, and they get very drunk, talk about what on earth Jerome is going to do while he's gone, a question that Jerome dodges. And later on, when they get home, Jerome admits that actually his paralysis was not due to an accident, but was in fact a failed suicide attempt. Remember what I said about, uh, you know, being second, uh, you know, you know, second place there? Yeah, he, he really, really didn't like not being at the top. Very much so. The plates department dispense all of their vacuums into a big genetic testing thingy, and it flashes up Gattaca employees until it lands on Vincent's eyelash, which he accidentally left there and was picked up, and registers him as an invalid who should not be working at Gattaca. I guess there's a... Is this say an employee designation, or is this something beyond just Gattaca? The detective is obsessed with finding this individual, thinking that because they have found a genetic invalid, that must obviously be their murderer. However, the lead investigator wants to find other leads because he is not convinced that this is the only avenue they should be exploring. Because you know, it's like, well, we should maybe like look at motives and, you know, maybe there's somebody that is supposed to be here that did it. Yes, the lead investigator goes, maybe racial profiling is not the only way we can investigate things. Calm down, dude. Yep. <laughs> uh, by the way, I think it might be a good thing to sort of point out that the lead investigator is actually much younger than the detective. Uh, and that is kind of important later. But anyway, I just want to... Yes, he is quite a bit younger. They go to talk to the director of... Gattaca, who explains that they are committed to finding exceptional candidates, and with genetic modification, that's not too hard. And they have rigorous testing to ensure that everyone lives up to their potential. And if they don't, if they exceed that for some reason, then obviously we didn't test them properly to figure out the potential. Yes, is. it is impossible to exceed your potential. It just means we did not measure it correctly in the first place. Pay attention. This yep. is one of the times <laughs> it yells themes at you. Yep. <laughs> Irene decides to show her interest in Vincent as Jerome by admitting to him that she is not, in fact, genetically perfect, but has a very slight potential for a heart problem. Slight potential. And in fact, she like pulls out her uh, one of her hairs and it's like, here, you can get this tested, man. Yeah, so he drops it saying, oops, nope, the wind took it. And then they run off together. <laughs> yeah, because uh, this is sort of a demonstration of their... Their, uh, their values here because uh, Irene already t had him tested without his knowledge uh, and because she you know is sort of bought into this genetic superiority sort of uh, you know, mentality while Vincent's like yeah whatever <laughs> 
The police begin to search for Vincent in earnest, posting his old picture all over office terminals. Despite no one recognizing him immediately, he is convinced that he will be found out and starts freaking out about it at home, but Jerome shouts him down, telling him that what he does not understand is that people no longer see him, they see one of their genetic golden boys, and no one is ever going to suspect that one of their top employees could possibly not be genetically augmented. Yes, because, uh, you know, we've seen, you know, a little bit of, you know, snippets here and there throughout the movie so far that, uh, you know, Vincent is doing very well at his job. And so, you know, <laughs> if there had been any doubt, it, you know, you know, that might, you know, might make it easier for them to believe that, that, you know, this guy wasn't supposed to be there, but he's actually beating all of their expectations. Vincent and Irene go out together to a concert, which is coincidentally played by a man who has 12 fingers on the piano. I think that's cheating, guy. Meanwhile, the police set up a perimeter around Gattaca to search for their missing Vincent, even testing Jerome at home, who avoids suspicion by shouting down the police officer until he leaves. Yes, uh, the police officer's like, oh, you're an astronaut? Why are you in a wheelchair? And, you know, Jerome's like, I hurt my leg in training. Get out of here. What's your badge number? Interestingly, also, this police officer is played by the same actor who plays the brother cop in Breaking Bad. Didn't catch that. <laughs> I can't remember the character's name in Breaking Bad, but he plays the brother-in-law uh, drug yes, drug yes. enforcement agent. <laughs> <laughs> the DEA man. Yes, the DEA man. On the way home, Vincent and Irene get caught up in a random checkpoint. He has to remove his contact lenses because this is something that the police are checking for specifically, which renders him nearly blind. Yep, uh, his uh, eyes are just that bad. This becomes an issue when Irene wants to show him something and they have to cross a busy road. But despite being unable to see the traffic, he makes his way across, but is also somewhat disappointed that the thing she wanted to show him was the sun rising over a solar farm, which does not look as pretty in fuzzo visions. It's like, well, this would be beautiful. The audience can see it, but I can't. Meanwhile, the police have found more of Vincent's DNA at Gattaca, which convinces them that they are still missing something and they need to test every employee intravenously so that it is harder to change out their DNA. But Vincent mm -hmm. still gets around this by pretending to be very, very hurt by a needle, allowing him to swap vials of blood that he had so the police find nothing. So... I think it might be important at this point to point out that Gattaca just generally has various uh, testing uh, things that they do throughout the day. And so this uh, intravenous uh, option is kind of very unusual. Like there's a little finger thing you put your, your, your finger on that uh, Vincent has a little like, you know, um, I, I guess a bladder in it that he wears over his uh, fingertip to sort of uh, trick that. And, you know, and he has the, uh, the urine bags in order to f uh, fool the, uh, the drug tests and things like that as well. Uh, and uh, and this you know and the uh, the, the drug testing and this intravenous stuff uh, in this particular location in the movie uh, features the uh, the doctor uh, Lamar who really should tell uh, uh, Vincent about his son sometime. Yes, I couldn't think of a very good way to fit that in. So <laughs> the son thing is a little awkward to write in the synopsis, but yeah, he sees the same doctor over and over, and he can he's asked if he's told him about his son a couple times. Vincent and Irene go out again, but this time to dinner and dancing instead of a concert. But partway through the meal, the police crash the party and start gene-swabbing people. This is a police raid. The speakeasy... Oh, wait a moment. This nice restaurant. Everyone <laughs> give us a cheek swab. Or else. <laughs> Vincent leads Irene out the back 
and uh, leaves a pill case that she had with her as accidental evidence. As soon as they're outside, he beats up a cop and grabs her and runs. Uh, being freaked out like this apparently just turns her on because they immediately start making out and then they go home and sleep together. Yes, they, they both make whoopee. And there's uh, lots of uh, imagery of oceans and waves. This is a theme, yes. <laughs> there's weirdly very little suspicion as to why he beat up a cop. Like she, I guess, assumes that he had something to do with the murder, but doesn't care. Yeah, well, you know, she understands that he's the golden boy. He is someone who's essential for the mission, for Gattaca. Yes. So maybe that? The lead investigator has somehow managed to connect that Jerome and Vincent may be connected, a fact that he hides from the detective, but he decides to go to confront him at Gattaca, but Irene warns Vincent away before the investigator can get there, and the investigator decides that he's going to take her, who he's also suspicious of, to see Jerome at his home. So, hey, Vincent, you look sick today. <clears throat> Meanwhile, the detective starts looking into other avenues of investigation, finally. Vincent is able to call Jerome to warn him about the impending police raid, and Jerome manages to drag himself upstairs just in time to be seated comfortably in the living room when the investigators arrive with Irene. Yeah, you see, Jerome's house uh, has sort of the lower level where he spends you know, his time, but also has a sort of upper level living room area, I guess. But in order to get up there, he'd need to go up a spiral staircase, which is a little hard to do in a wheelchair. Yes, a big old spiral staircase that's always in the background of the shots with the two of them sharing DNA. Yep. The art direction <laughs> of this movie is amazing. He obviously passes a DNA test because he's Jerome. Yep. <laughs> And the investigator is called away before he can look into things any further because they've caught the murderer. Oh, who, who was it? We'll get to that in a second, because first Irene has to be understandably upset to find that Vincent and Jerome in the same room together and that they're living a double life. Yeah, so if she had suspicions before, they're pretty much obvious now. I do kind of like the reveal, because she's just staring, and Vincent starts slowly coming up the stairs. Is how are you, Jerome? It's like, oh, I'm fine, Jerome. Yeah, because uh, I mean, you know, it's you know by this you know before the sort of final reveal has kind of caught on that there you know, there's something like this is going on, but just kind of being confronted with this here and it's like okay, I can't be in denial anymore, hmm. and so she kind of storms out. She is very upset that she has no idea who this man she's become involved with is, but Vincent just tells her everything. She's very dubious of it, but he even shares that they have a similar heart condition and it doesn't have to hold them back. In fact, uh, Vincent should be dead by now. The detective, who finally started looking into other avenues of the murder, discovered that it was not Vincent, but was in fact the company director who had killed his co-worker to protect the launch of the mission that Vincent is now scheduled to leave on. So apparently the uh, the one dude that died uh, was uh, you know starting to raise some red flags about the, the mission, and it's like, maybe we should scrub it sort of stuff. And so the director's like, um... No, I don't want the next mission to be coming after I, I'm dead. So, Though it is worth pointing out that the other avenues of investigation he did were to just search the body for other DNA, and he found yep. the director's <laughs> DNA. Yeah, there's a, I think there's like a little bit of saliva in the guy's eye or something like that. So they never actually like did any particular police investigation. It's like, yeah, just sweep everything up. That'll give us all the information we need, because obviously it is the invalids that are always to blame. The inspector, however, seems unhappy that they have caught the murderer. Hmm. 
Vincent decides that even though the murder investigation is now done, he is going to have to confront the inspector one way or another and goes to Gattaca to find the inspector sitting at his workspace. It's almost like he's been expecting you. They stand up and face each other. Insecta says, Is it really been so long that you don't recognize your own brother? Dun dun dun! Anton is here to arrest Vincent for fraud and try to protect him as best he can. But Vincent taunts him with the time that he beat him at swimming. And Anton decides that in order to prove that he is superior, they need to go to the ocean and repeat their childhood swimming contest. So... So it's a, 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 re, a repetition of that last, uh, you know, encounter they had before Vincent left home and vanished for years and years. Um, I also think it might be good, important to note that there was a brief uh, scene earlier where uh, Vincent was on the treadmill. They were using a little, you know, heartbeat fooling device, whatever, to, uh, you know, to make it seem like, you know, he was A-OK as far as his, uh, you know, uh, aerobic exercise was going. But he was actually having a horrible time. Yes, but... Having He was in good enough shape to be able to act like he was fine, even though his heart was going pretty quickly. But uh, once he was out in, you know, out of the gym area and he's like, oh, God, I'm dying. (laughs) This particular race works out exactly the same as their last one, but with him having to save his brother from drowning again. This scene is beautiful. They swim out into the fog and lose sight of shore and... Vincent yells about how he wins because he doesn't leave anything, any energy left for the swim back. Yeah, it's like, well, I'm going to win, then I'm going to win. He also, like, has to rescue his brother and swims backward with his brother as the clouds part and he stares up at the stars looking at his future while literally dragging the burden of his genetically superior brother along with him. Yep. (laughs) There's maybe a few metaphors here. (laughs) After Vincent saves his brother for the second time, he returns home where Irene is sleeping in her car outside. He gives her some of his hair and says that she can have it tested, but she drops it. Well, it seems that she's uh, decided to take on his sort of values on this now. They decide that him being away in space for a year really isn't that long. They can, you know, hook up again afterwards. Jerome is busy stockpiling samples for Vincent so him to use when he returns to Earth. He's given him a few years of samples, uh, or a lifetime-ish of samples, apparently. It's a lot of samples. Giant walk-in freezer sort of samples. Because Jerome has decided that he's also going to be traveling, and he gives Vincent a note to open when he's on his way to space. Jerome arrives at the space dock, but encounters an unexpected genetic test that he was not prepared for. And he has to give a real sample to the doctor. While he's bemoaning the fact that they could have just let him go up and no one would have ever known the difference in about 10 minutes, the doctor says that it's about time he told Vincent about his son, who really, really looks up to him and wants to apply to be an astronaut. But his son didn't turn out quite the way that he was supposed to. Despite the whole uh, genetic tinkering and screening and all that, he wasn't quite as, quote, perfected as they wanted. Vincent's genetic test reveals his actual identity, but the doctor hits a button to change it to Jerome, the valid entrant for the rocket. Seems the doc uh, had had caught on some time ago about Vincent's real identity. Yes, he has a very good line that just is like, so for future reference, right-handed men don't hold it with their left. Yep. You know what I mean. Yes, the doctor knew the entire time. It's a great little end reveal. Yep. (laughs) 
Vincent boards the rocket in a full suit and tie. Yep. <laughs> as Jerome lifts himself into their home incinerator and turns it on as soon as Vincent's rocket launches. Good- goodbye, Jerome. Vincent opens the note to find a lock of Jerome's hair. And he has some more voiceover saying, while he never found a place on Earth, he's now having a hard time leaving it. But every atom of a person was once a star, so maybe in a sense, he's just going back home. This was just an amazing movie all around. Yes. <laughs> yeah, I, I think it's probably one of my all-time favorites. And, you know, uh, so so as far as like the, the movies we select here, we sort of go back and forth you know, between us here. Uh, and if Gepwin hadn't chosen this one, I would probably have chosen this next, actually. I think there's a few little things to mention that don't come across well in a in a quick synopsis. Uh, we mentioned the art direction a few times. It's it's very, very deliberately using 1950s and 60s architecture and clothing and workplace styles and vehicles. Yes, it's, uh, you know, you know sort of this very executive sort of look to a lot of things, a lot of brutalist architecture, a lot of uh, long straight lines, all that fun stuff. Yeah, everyone is always in a suit and tie. Uh, all the cars are electric. They show them charging them. They have electric motor noises, but they are all uh, 1960s cars. It's, uh, the style, you know, just uh, the, something new under the hood, which I guess kind of fits with you know everything in the, in the movie, really. Yeah, it's very deliberately drawing on 1950s, 1960s aesthetics. Mm-hmm. And that gets to the actual like themes of the movie because I, I hadn't seen this movie in a bit and I wanted to bring this one in as our movie this week because I've been thinking a lot about genetics and kind of genetic predeterminism as it's being talked about in in health and mental health recently and it's been annoying me and I wanted a chance to rant about it. <laughs> oh, go for it, go for it. <laughs> but this movie is is not about genetics. Like yeah, basically in any way. Yeah, the, the the genetics is the excuse, but not the core. Yes, this movie very, very deliberately brings in themes of prejudice and bias and racism. Like I was, I was saying this the other day. Like this movie is about genetics the same way that the X Men is about genetics. Yes, <laughs> it's like here are here is the the uh, the the sci fi explanation for why this system now exists as it is. But we're actually talking about something else. So I think the first thing that we need to talk about is kind of the the very basic history of scientific racism. Yes, we've we've touched a little bit on this uh, previously. Uh, you know, I remember that whole episode about Khan. Yes, but this is this is um, less directly eugenicist because the the whole Khan thing and the eugenics board. And the, this was actually called like the the, the genetic genetics eugenics board, which I just learned was like part of something called the American Society of Breeders. That's kind of a spooky name. Yeah, but that's actually playing off of much older ideas, which um, the one people probably have heard of is the good old skull measuring. Oh, yes. All that nonsense. So there was a uh, branch of pseudoscience called uh, phrenology. Yeah, it's like a little bumps on your head. We're going to use those to figure out if you're going to be good or evil, smart or dumb, or you know, you're going to be super strong or something. You know, just by touching your head and figuring out where all little, you know, where, you, where your brain is apparently bigger in certain locations. Yeah, the basic idea is 
that you're supposed to kind of you you measure someone's head this was something that was developed in the 1800s so this is pretty old it predates a lot of modern medical knowledge okay it might not be a very good thing to rely on for your your ideas guys <laughs> yeah oh actually it was developed right before the 1800s just pulled up the page it was uh developed in 1796 so, so almost 1800s predates a lot of stuff so um this german guy named uh, franz joseph gall had what is probably still the largest collection of human skull samples ever assembled and creepy bastard he decided that he was going to measure the skulls and use that as a physical determination of race science so he got skulls and he had ones that were labeled caucasian and he had ones that were labeled other basically and he measured the skulls he came up with what is still a not entirely unaccepted theory of the four basic races which was being taught in school textbooks into the 70s so wait wait so you're saying if i ever invent a time machine i can go back mess up all his labels and we might be able to save a lot of people a lot of uh, grief no Damn it. You have to go back further. There was actually a uh, a book written to defend a prince who did a lot of slave trading, and that's where the kind of genesis of uh, modern racism stems from. Ah, it's actually very interesting. <laughs> <laughs> but this was this was the kind of earliest establishment of racism as science. It's like it's a here is physical measurable things that like you know people of different races just have different sized brains based on their different sized and proportioned skulls and this is why racism is a biologically predetermined thing that we can look at scientifically i don't got anything to add there sorry, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> and you get this that led directly into like that was that was some pseudoscience that was going all the way through the kind of 1800s basically uh, that pseudoscience led into what we would think of as kind of the modern eugenics movement, which still uh, not based on DNA. We hadn't gotten to to genes by that point. Yeah, the, the the gene part of eugenics is you know a bit more you know a bit more later. Yeah, the original eugenics was based on a few criterias that we now use as insults. So you know, moron, imbecile. Those are actual like. Uh, um mental health terms that they were using and especially the term feeble-minded which was very broad and was used to basically refer to anyone who did anything i don't like you slap this label on somebody and you can uh, basically disregard everything about them one of the earliest kind of court definitions that was used for feeble-mindedness was a a woman who got pregnant as an unmarried teenager and that case got taken all the way to the supreme court and it was defended that she should be forcibly sterilized mouser so uh i guess touches on something uh kind of i guess not really talked about or is kind of actively ignored that you know a lot of folks sort of you know, back in the day even you know even more recently uh were basically institutionalized because their family had a problem with them but not because they had actually anything wrong with them oh yeah that was a lot of institutionalization uh intel and possibly including now yeah 
the only reason it's not as prevalent now is because institutionalizing is not very prevalent now because we closed down all the mental hospitals. Um, uh, did, I, did I tell about, uh, you know, the time I read uh, The Group by Mary McCarthy? I don't think so. All right, it's a long book, but uh, one of the things it touches upon is actually this exact thing. Uh, the There is one lady uh, in the story that uh, was having some issues with her husband, so he just had her committed, and there's nothing wrong with her. <laughs> in fact, even in the... 18 and early 1900s a woman could be called mentally unfit for reading too much so you you have not stayed in your predetermined location in society so we are going to punish you well it obviously overtaxed their minds and made them mentally feeble it's just so painful <laughs> mm-hmm. so anyway that got moved into eugenics which we've talked about before but was actually state regulated had laws with forcible sterilization for uh, prisoners especially, but basically anyone that the state decided was mentally unfit to continue having offspring. Yes, uh, fit versus unfit, valid versus invalid. Yeah, perfectly legal. Uh, The reason that this works very well as a near-future movie, and not so much as like the horrors of genetic engineering that people like to talk about, well, it is kind of, but it's in a different way that I think a lot of people seem to be missing in this discourse that I've read about this particular movie. This is supposed to be the like nicer side of eugenics. I saw a couple people pointing out that this was like, ah, oh, Big Brother government control movie, but it's not. There's They never mention that the government plays any role in saying that people need to go, undergo genetic manipulation. In fact, it's explicitly stated that there are laws against this type of genetic discrimination. They're just completely ignored. Yeah, they're just, you know, effectively unenforceable. And so everyone just sort of, you know, you know has these uh, genetic testing things, that, you know, and, you know, and make all their decisions based on it because that's sort of the culture of, at this point in time in, this, uh, in the movie. Yeah, so... It is a kind of social eugenics. The The best thing that I feel this movie did, and the thing that it seems like a lot of people miss, is everyone talks about the dangers of genetic enhancement as, you know, if one person gets genetic enhanced, everyone has to. It's kind of like the steroid argument in sports. Yeah, the arms race with big beefy arms. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so it's that, like, you know, one person's been genetically augmented, so now they're more competitive, so everyone has to be genetically augmented in order to maintain this level of competition. And so you get, you know, a hundred Jerome Morrows who are all, you know, old, but only one of them can be, you know, number one here. The, the thing that this movie does kind of beautifully, it sets this up as the world, and it sets this up as the thing that everyone believes, and then it keeps showing you that it's wrong. Yep. <laughs> this is not a story about, you know, genetically superior people, and this one guy just happens to overcome them and break through society. This is a movie about a race of people who all believe themselves to be genetically superior with absolutely no basis in fact for that decision yeah it's like well the test tells me tells me this so it's now i am automatically better than you as opposed to you know actually that being the case at all and they <laughs> show that the tests are like 
if not 100% wrong, at least very fallible. Explicitly said several times already, Vincent, according to their tests, should be dead by this point. Yeah, like he had a 99% chance of dying of heart failure by the time he was 32, but also a like 70% chance of ADHD learning impairments and a like 40% chance of being manic depressive and just all these other things that he doesn't have. That's it's almost like he's, you know, you know, taken these as challenges and overcome them. And you get the other side of it pretty explicitly, too, in his brother and the real Jerome, mm-hmm. who are both genetically superior and have massive inferiority complexes about it. Because yeah, they cannot, you know, uh, meet up with the expectations that have been set upon them. In fact, I think there's uh, one bit with the, uh, you know, in the, the gym where uh, the director is talking to, uh, you know, the, the brother and, you know, it's like, yes, and, you know, some of our, you know, less qualified, uh, you know, employees, you know, could have even been cops like yourself. <laughs> and that that scene is kind of the thing that just explicitly tells you what this movie is about. Mm-hmm. Because he's he's sitting there watching Vincent do his workout, believing him to be the genetically superior Jerome. And he says, if someone exceeds their potential, it's because we didn't measure it right. And that's the entire text of the film. They told (laughs) Vincent that he had no potential because they measured him that way. And he showed them that they were wrong and he actually could be what this society considers to be the best of them. So uh, I think this might be a good time to mention the concept of meritocracy. Yes. Yes. So uh, if you're unfamiliar, uh, meritocracy, uh, the term was coined in the, in the 50s, but uh, the general idea sort of existed for quite some time, uh, you know, you know, that the people that are the most able should get the promotions. Uh, but the, the, the main you know, issue with that is what determines who is the best person, what a measure of uh, test and qualification are we using? Because if the tests that you're using are consistently wrong, you're not doing anything remotely correct here as far as you know, the ideals you're trying to uh, you know, aspire to as, as far as your, your basic statement. But, you know, you, but you're not going to admit that your tests are wrong unless you really, really have to. <laughs> uh, and so this is very much a, you know, you know the, the, the world of Gattaca is a, quote, meritocracy in that they have tests that define your your potential and where you should be in society without actually making sure that you that's actually reflecting reality. Well, yes, it's I guess I would call it a predeterministic meritocracy. Yes. And the see you get into that thing cuz the the problem with actual like modern ideas of meritocracy is the same problem that you have with all these other things in that it makes the assumption that everyone is starting from the same base level of power. Indeed. And that is the central thing that they have in this movie is based on your genetics, you are given special treatment. Like the people with superior genetics get to go to the best schools and they get to go to the best training. They get offered the most prestigious jobs and given better opportunities for self-improvement. So, of course, it's proven over and over and over that the people with the best genetics do best. It's like, well, we're going to, you know, assume that nature is correct in the nature versus nurture, but we're also going to nurture you, so just to be sure. 
Yeah, and then someone like Vincent, we are shown because of his genetic inferiority, is not even allowed to attend public school, yep. is given no opportunity for job advancement, is barred from even being in most positions. So when he winds up as a janitor, this, of course, proves that people who are genetically inferior can't hold higher level positions. It's like, well, you sent him on this course. What what do you expect? So it's exactly that. You you give different opportunities to people at different levels, but then use that to use where they wind up to justify the fact that you shouldn't have given them the opportunities. Oh yes, yeah. The self fulfilling prophecy totally proves correctly that uh, my 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 uh, prophecy was correct. Yes, even though I made it correct. Huh. And there was this interesting thing, and I want to be very mindful of how I talk about this because. There is a definite casting issue in this movie. Yes, I, I, I sort of, when I was, you know, you know, have my last watch through there, you know, sort of taking note of this particular thing, which I think you're going to talk about here. Yeah, I believe that there are possibly three black people in this entire movie. And one of them was the doctor at the beginning we already mentioned. This movie is aggressively white. Yes. And I want to say that that is very much probably a product of you know 1990s hollywood only ever hiring white actors filling their movies with with white performers like this has been a systemic problem in hollywood for years and years and years that we are only barely starting to talk about kind of pretty much since the beginning of hollywood honestly it's just it is just an inbuilt systemic issue with hollywood so i want to be able, i want to talk about how the themes of the movie deal with the fact that everyone is in it is white in sort of an abstract way. They never deal with it explicitly. Uh, but I want to couch that by saying that the casting choices in this movie are still racially motivated in a crappy way that has to do with, you know, kind of racial bias in the Hollywood system. And nothing I say about how the movie uses its racial casting is meant to make that okay. This is a problem that is existing, but they can at least use it for something. But it doesn't make the original problem good, no. But there is an interesting thing that they do with the casting of the movie, and I think it is kind of... The key of it is in that line that you mentioned earlier, where the genetic doctor, who is a person of color, mentions that they have chosen to have a light-skinned child. And that's the crux of why everyone in this movie is white, because you can choose your genetic traits and appearance that you would like. So, of course, everyone is going to choose the genetic traits and appearance that happen to coincide with what is the quote unquote superior racial group as we have it in our modern society. Yeah, so who in the, our society is afforded the most opportunities? Well... It's white people. <laughs> yeah. Surprise. So it's just a self-reinforcing system based on nothing more than existing biases. Mm -hmm. Someone pointed out, um, which I think is a, is a fairly valid read of the movie, depending on how you're looking at it, that if you're saying that this movie is based on the concept of genetic superiority and you put every single person in your movie is white, you're basically reinforcing the idea that white people are genetically superior. Which is a little unfortunate. 
And I think that's a very, very valid argument. I'm not yes. trying to bash it. But for that to be the case, you have to take the movie's premise at a very face value read of what they're saying it is. But if you look at the text of the film, it doesn't appear that they are actually saying that the people who think they're genetically superior actually are. Yeah, if anything, it's more pointing out that this is a value that the, the, the uh, people in the movie have that is completely off base. Yes. What I thought was particularly interesting with that, and I don't know if it was a line of thinking that the filmmakers had, but if if you were looking at this purely from a genetic health perspective, if you were just like, I can genetically control these aspects of my child and I want them to have the best possible chance of not having you know diseases or health problems or whatever later in life. Darker skin is better. I have very light skin myself, and uh, I'm very prone to these things called sunburns. And, uh, you know, the doctors have said, you know, I was like, yeah, do be careful about that. You don't want to get like a whole bunch of skin cancer. Yeah, you're going like darker skin protects you from skin damage. The only particular genetic thing that lighter skin is for is to get vitamin D, which doesn't really hold up that well in modern times. Drink your milk, folks. So while I fully admit and completely endorse anyone who wants to say there's a large racial casting problem in this movie, the way that they talk about it in the text of the film is very interesting and kind of goes along with the fact that people would just say like, well, we want white babies because white people get the best stuff. I mean, there's, there's even a slight potential, though it's never actually stated in the film, that, you know, that minority parents might you know try to make their children look as white as possible for just the better opportunities there's a there's a significant chance that they could have just been skewing everyone towards this very average looking you know pretty white person and uh, it sort of suggested uh, that this has been going on for at least as long as uh, vincent's been alive uh and you know potentially a bit longer so this might be like generation two or three down the line so you know, just uh, enough selection like that. And, well, yeah. There's uh, also another thing that uh, might be uh, sort of a unspoken of factor here. That in order to, you know, get your customized babies, doesn't it take a little bit of money? They never really say, but probably. Yeah, so it might be that the people that are getting, uh, you know, the uh, genetically engineered, uh, you know, uh, ch uh, children here are the ones who are already fairly well off as far as you know you know financial situation goes and given in the u.s at least that tends to be white people that might also be a factor as well yes they also have so there's this line uh near the beginning in the exposition portion where vincent says that all other forms of prejudice are gone now that people can be prejudiced based on genetics <laughs> yeah but my thought on that is like mm, it's more that this is now what all of these have kind of turned into as opposed to you know they're not there it's more of a more of a, more of a, you know a evolution of it the very interesting thing with that is if you think about the character who just told you this mm -hmm. like this is not an omniscient narrator this is vincent telling his backstory so if you look at the character of vincent as a white guy who is being discriminated against because of his genetics, yep. who doesn't seem to encounter very many not-white guys, 
of course this is going to be his perspective on the world. So, uh, yeah, racism ended in 1965, man. Everything's cool now. And yeah, it's this other thing that only that affects me specifically that it matters now. Yes, the only thing that matters is this one thing that it very, very specifically affects me. I get so tired of that take. <laughs> this is a very, very smart movie to talk about prejudice. I do think there's also a possibility that they wanted to make it look like more of an even playing field in the film so that they could just talk about prejudice on their terms rather than bringing in what you would assume to be real world prejudices. Yeah, so they put that big separation so that people's uh, innate biases are not going to be as uh, much of a, a hang up for folks for getting the message. Yeah, which I think is something that, you know, that science fiction can be very, very good at. Yeah. The other thing that... Like, I, I loved how they did it because they never said that genetics was a useful measure of anything for any reason in any way other than the way that they happen to be measuring it. Uh, they've made up these metrics for people and then they judge everyone on it. The arbitrary test. And that's something that we're doing. Yep. But is a problem. <laughs> that is something that we do now. It's just with different things. So the, one of the things that I wanted to rant about with this particular movie. Is it a pre-existing condition with insurance? Um, uh, let, let me guess here. Um, is it, uh, you know, the, the you, know, uh, you know, educational attainment, uh, you know, based on uh, you know, your, your, your standardized tests in high schools about uh, getting close? <laughs> now, this particular one has to do with his mental health screening at the beginning. Uh, okay, go, go for it. There's this there's this trend in mental health fields. There there are two basic ways that people think about mental health at the minute, yeah. and it can either be mental, where you know something's up in your mind and not which is distinct from your brain in this situation. Something's up with your mind and how your mind is working, processing things, has learned to deal with the world that maybe isn't working out as well as you would like. And you can talk to someone about it, find different ways of thinking about it, find a model of, of thinking about your own mind that works better for you to be able to understand it and deal with it. So a software issue. Yeah, basically, from the computer analogy side. And then what we are doing now, which has become more and more prevalent and has become kind of overshadowing a lot of other ideas, is the physical model of mental health, which says you are made of chemicals and cells and electric bits. And if we can figure out how to manipulate those chemicals and electric bits and whatever, we can basically fix whatever's wrong in your brain. And uh, just don't put like giant needles into my head. That'd be kind of uncomfortable. And one of the things that we are currently looking into with this is whether or not certain genetic markers influence mental health in later life. But not something obvious. We're obviously looking into certain things like Alzheimer's and other sorts of, you know, mental degeneration that happens that does seem to have some sort of very physical component to it. Yeah, you know, these things that, uh, you know, uh, this, you know, does your body work this particular way so that this sort of, you know, long trend sort of physical damage is going to be, you know, you know uh, developing 
and this, you know, or is your body going to be more prepared to sort of take care of that, to prevent it, fight it, or something else? Or is it just a genetic thing? Like, you know, this bit of genetics like makes your brain start developing plaque when you get older, and or there's yeah. certain kind of pretty horrific, like actual genetic diseases and disorders that can start blocking off blood flow to parts of your brain and actually, you know, shut parts of it down. Yowzers. Yeah, those are fairly rare, but they are they are things that can actually physically, you know, damage your brain. But a lot of the things that we're looking into are these ideas like can we find genes that make you more susceptible to PTSD after trauma or can we find genes that make it likely you'll become depressed as a teenager? And there's a few problems that I have with this, and I think they were actually better illustrated in this movie than I thought they might be. And one, uh, we don't have single genes for things. That's a very old concept that we would be able to find a gene that, yep. you know, determines whether or not you become depressed. And we are a lot more complex than, you know, sort of, you know, is implied with like, oh, yes, I have the gene for this or I have the gene for that. Now, it's it's there's interplay. You have to, you know, take in consideration. There's, you know, various modifiers, that can, you, know, you know, coming in as well. It's, you know, it's, you know, if it's like, Going back to sort of that software sort of analogy again, uh, it's you have a UDIC system, which is your body, uh, and you and, and the uh, your genetic code is the various interdependencies and little programs and snippets of code that are all sort of in, you know, uh, involved there. And you know, depending on what your build is, you might have a different version of this compared to this other one, which may be, you know, you know, resulting in peculiar behavior in this other thing that seems unrelated because it references this, which references that, which references that. So we're now trying to look at gene clusters instead of individual genes, which is you know, harder. The kind of medical model of this is trying to say, let's take someone who's depressed. Let's take a big group of people who are depressed and let's analyze their genes and see if they have similar markers and then maybe that marker is what makes you depressed yeah sort of a you know take take the full genome compare what's similar and this comes a bit of a problem for a couple of reasons one um that's kind of a weird backward way of doing things you can't really test this well because it's just too unwieldy uh, you would basically have to test a massive sample of people, then watch them, see which ones became depressed, look at those markers, see if those markers are distinct from people who don't become depressed. And it's just way too big. The thing we're doing now is like testing people who are already depressed and looking for similarities, and we're finding some things, but not really, and it's just this big mess. It's basically unprovable. You need a, a, a big control group. You need a you know sufficiently varied you know, core study group, all that sort of stuff. And there's, you know, some practical difficulties in doing a study like that. But also, you know, given the lack of results so far, it's kind of, yeah. <laughs> it's like, maybe, maybe there's not much of a point. These disorders and the, the diagnoses we're working with, the the, the pathologizing is, is very subjective. Mm -hmm. Like when you say, you know, you're, this person could become depressed, what does that mean? Depression is a very subjective feeling for people yes and it doesn't necessarily come in the same you know you know flavors here and uh, you know how it makes you react as well is going to be varied yeah and is it all the same thing is it a word that mo that a lot of people use for different things you can't really tell so there's a lot of problems on that kind of end the other particular thing is let us say that you do find a gene cluster that seems to very heavily correlate with depression 
And now what? Do we just cut it out? Do we do some gene therapy? Do we, you know, try to eugenics this up somehow? What? What then? Yeah, you run into some <laughs> problems. Like one, we don't have the technology to edit this out. Like we might at some point, probably not anytime soon. It's going to be really hard. Uh, we don't know if it's going to be connected to other stuff. Like it's probably going to give you cancer. I think we're going to be uh, uploading our brains to robots before that. Yeah, I have some other points on that, but that's a different <laughs> video. <laughs> that's a later video. Don't worry about that. Things to come in the future. <laughs> so, like, fine, you find a you find a genetically correlative thing that matches up to people who get depression. Like, your choices are fairly limited at this point. It's it's interesting. I'm never going to say we shouldn't learn these things. That's kind of the point of doing research is to just learn as much as possible because it might become useful at some point in some way you don't know. But yeah. like practically, you can't actually do anything with this information. It's sort of a, at best at this point, sort of a, a this is interesting, but eh. <laughs> yeah, so the fact that it's interesting is great and fine, but... Where I run into a problem with it is how it keeps being talked about like it's some sort of road to a solution. Yeah, but it's not. <laughs> if anything, it's, you know, this sort of information is a road to, well, kind of everything that Gattaca is sort of about. Yes, you could say this person has a pretty big chance of being depressed. And this is the problem that's very interestingly presented in Gattaca is that the problem is not the biology it's not the fact that people are doing genetic engineering it's not even the fact that the government is doing anything the government is non-present in this movie it's the fact that corporations are allowed to do crummy corporate stuff yep surprise so this is something that people can and will and do currently do if you mm -hmm. found a genetic marker that you could very closely correlate with depression or even like sort of correlate with depression if a company finds out about this they're less likely to hire this person or they're going to give you bad health insurance rates or something this is something that's happening now yeah even if it's illegal for like under the the aca in america even if it's illegal to discriminate against people with pre-existing conditions corporations still can do some crummy stuff if they find out you have a pre-existing condition because they don't want to hire people with this yeah, because, you know, it's like, okay, so, you know, we can't deny you health insurance explicitly on this particular determination, but we can come up with some reason just not to give you a job at all. And we'll just say it's up to our prerogative. You didn't feel right, as opposed to there's actually a hidden reason for it. Yeah, there was a particular uh, story a, a few weeks ago as of us recording this. I believe it was Electronic Arts. Uh, came out with a with a thing where they were highly encouraging employees to use a fertility tracking app. Oh my! That was company linked. Would give the company information. They said that they wanted to ensure that women who wanted to have a child who worked for them got to have the healthiest baby possible because it would be better for the company if they had a healthy baby that they didn't have to devote a lot of time to. So. Yeah, so your personal life is now the company's, by the way. and uh... Which I think gets into this other interesting issue, which is a way that we, especially as it's being talked about, millennials um, have come to have to think of ourselves in the terms of corporate sellability. 
like everything that a person does now anything that you do has to kind of be to be in service of upping your own personal value to corporations you have to have the the, the right resume you, you have to have the right attitude you have to say the right things you need to dress you know the, the right way you need to not be someone who's, who rocks the boat at all you need you know this that the other thing you need the the right background you need all the uh you know after school activities back in high school you need all the proper clubs in college you need you know this kind of degree but not that other kind of degree because reasons even though they're very similar all that sort of uh, uh, jazz that sort of is a selection of cuts that you might not actually know what is the in and out but you try to do your best anyway yeah and that's an interesting what list that you give there because that's all the stuff that you had to do already yes the new, now there's more <laughs> yeah well the new thing is that every aspect of your life has to be this like if you take a rest day it's not because you're tired and you need a rest day it's because taking a rest day has been proven to make you more productive through the week yep. or if you have a hobby it's not because you enjoy the hobby it's because this hobby is teaching you a skill that gives you creativity value for a corporation or your online profile means that you're good at building an online following brand that might be useful for a corporation something they can exploit so there's just this particular culture at the minute that I don't think is is super nefarious. It's like evolved out of a very crummy you know job market that a lot of us entered into when we were coming of age as millennials. Mm -hmm. And it's just this idea that every part of your life, everything you do, every every action you take has to be geared toward this idea that you can make yourself more productive and attractive to people that you are trying to sell yourself to as sort of a job and the social capital kind of thing has even come in with the with dating ideas i know some people who have been recently complaining about trying to date currently on like uh, dating apps and it's the same idea everything that you do has to make you kind of a more sellable person on these apps and in these online marketplaces for the dating and it's just something that everyone is doing i don't think that i'm not trying to criticize i don't want to to old man at this but it's like it's this current culture we have of everything has to be this thing that 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 makes you more productive or more sellable or just other things that is just you're not allowed to have anything that's a waste of time if you need to take care of yourself it's because that makes you more sellable if you need to you know eat lunch you need to have health food because it makes you more attractive to the dating complex or whatever and yeah you need to also make sure to take those photos of your food so everyone knows yeah that's just a slightly <laughs> different thing but that's you know the number of online followers you you have can be Part of your resume do you know how to manage a social media brand uh poorly <laughs> <laughs> yeah there would be more people listening to this show if either of us were good at this stuff <laughs> yeah the it, it's a sort of a requirement of a constant performance you have to be producing that you know if you break down even just a little bit suddenly there's a giant crack in that facade and you know people can't trust you to be this perfect person you're now having to be you know, you know in order to get yourself sold is uh, a little frustrating and this even ties in to the the also fairly recent like uh scandal of rich celebrities buying their children into school you have to have the the right uh pedigree you have to have the right degree and uh, well we only got one of these so we're going to be uh buying the other one yeah so that was the pretty 
like that was a pretty genius move that this movie did and i feel it just overshadows anything else you could talk about because it just interwove it so brilliantly this just your parents want to give you the best start in life so you will be genetically engineered based on these arbitrary measures that we use in society and that's it that is what's going to determine your entire future how much genetic work your parents wanted to put into you regardless of anything else regardless of your actual abilities or actual performance at anything you just have the genetics so you get to do the thing you have no choice in your life whatsoever surprise and i do like how crummy it was shown to be for everyone the people who were at the top are also unhappy with this system everyone's just holding it up <laughs> yeah it's sort of one of those common lies the uh you know it's like well this is just how everyone does it so i if i try to rock the boat i'll be out and then that will be bad so i'm just not going to and you know i'll be kind of unhappy about the situation but i gotta keep a smile on unless you know i have a moment of vulnerability with someone i kind of like but even that is kind of a risk you also had a couple of very good kind of pieces that kept this from just being sort of a individualist power fantasy because mm -hmm. he one he needed to have this relationship with the other person to steal the identity he didn't just steal someone's identity he had to live with and get along with and develop a relationship with this other person like they could have just as easily said you buy a bunch of blood bags and then you know have a new identity go. Yeah, I, I, I do really do appreciate that, you know, uh, Jerome Eugene Morrow, which, you know, they call him Eugene a lot in the movie, the the guy who's in the wheelchair. You know, he's very much President Vincent's life. And the interplay between them is kind of one of the, you know, you know, you know excellent things in the movie because uh, you both get, you know, it's a both great way to sort of get, learn more about each of their characters, but also to sort of learn how both of them sort of view the world they live in. And they also have the really, really good little reveal at the end with the doctor, which just he was caught. <laughs> this was not a story of him just being so good that he got through this whole thing. This was a story of like he and a few other people worked together to kind of overturn how crummy this system is because they all have their own reasons for being uh, didn't like for being disillusioned with it everyone is sort of like okay there's this big lie here but we know what's actually going on and we don't like it so we're gonna maybe fight the system in our own little ways yeah so even though it's never like you know a revolutionary cadre it, this is still a group effort that let this mm -hmm. guy get through the system and attain this level of success it's not an individual who is just you know so exceptionally good at things because that would have been the same problem yeah you could have just said well he's just an exceptional individual who deserves things which is the thing that the movie is trying to warn against there is multiple times he would have been caught and completely tossed out and, and end up in jail you know throughout this whole process but he didn't because everyone kind of had his back yeah, in one way or another, even without like explicitly working together, you needed more than one person to do this. Maybe we should all work together a little bit more. <laughs> could probably go on and on about this movie for quite a while, but it's all hitting basically the same theme. 
it just hits that theme very, very well. I do. I would say if you haven't <laughs> seen this in a while or if you watched it and only thought about the kind of genetic side of it, which it seems like a lot of people who were writing about this maybe only f- focused too much on the genetic part, like rewatch it with the idea that it's not about genetics. Yeah, there is uh, a lot more going on here than just that surface level stuff. But we've already been going on for too long, so I think it's time for the galaxy's favorite game show! Hey everybody, welcome to the game show portion of the show, and uh, we once again have tallied up all the points and given, are ready to give out some awards for their, their astounding... Uh, you know, a, a high achievement in the face of, um, well, genetic tempering, I guess. Hmm. Anyway, our first award is the Plausible Future Award, which goes to the whole dang movie because, yeah. What does the movie win, Gepwin? The movie wins possible genetic co-working spaces. It was a little too early for this movie, but you know, you just need your, your vitamin water with your cucumbers and you live your best life at Whole Foods. I don't think I've ever been to a Whole Foods, honestly. You're not missing much. Okay, then. <laughs> Our second award is the Fight the Power Quietly Award, which goes to Doc Lamar for knowing Vincent's secret the whole time and yet keeping quiet about it. What is this hero of the uh, of the future uh, win, Gepwin? This hero of the revolution wins an obscure Henry David Thoreau paper entitled Resistance to Civil Government, which is the basis of nonviolent civil disobedience, because I couldn't think of a good opposite for the anarchist cookbook, and I do explain this joke too much. <laughs> but that's fine. I think uh, there may be a, a good bit of reading for folks to ch- check out at some point. Um, our third award is Never Tell Me the Odds uh, Award, which goes to Vincent for overcoming th- the statistics that said he'd never amount to anything and then die young. What does he win, Gepwin? Vincent wins a lot of lottery tickets. It's either everyone was lying about this or he's going to win a lot of money. Well, I think his uh, odds might still be long on that, but you never know. Hmm. Our fourth award, we actually got five today is the Tarnished Golden Boy Award, which goes to Eugene because Joe Morrow isn't supposed to take play- second place. When does he win, Gepwin? Jerome wins some gold spray paint. It's easier than an incinerator. I'll, I'll back that up. Uh, Jerome, uh, we'll miss you. Um, our final award is the Executive Spaceman Award, which goes to uh, the whole Gattaca Corporation for sending all their spacemen and women into space in style. You know, suits and ties and all that. What do they win, Gepwin? Retrofuturism for the win! Woot! Let's hope we don't Z-Rust too much on this. That'll do it for all the awards, but this is just a gorgeous movie, and the suits are just so part of it. I want a suit yes. now. <laughs> you know, I, I, have I have one, a, but I need a new one. Yeah, I got some stuff that's kind of similar, but I don't got a like, full suit. You know, I got like the, the shirt and like the pants, but not the jacket anymore. No. Well, thank you for joining us in this very fashion-centered edition of The Galaxy's Favorite Game Show! Well, that's Gattaca. Everyone should go watch it. Yes, and if you haven't watched it yet, do it now and then watch it again. Yes, watch it several times, over and over. (laughs) 
I command it. Well, just I, I was remembering it just being the genetic themes, and it wasn't. It was like actually an interesting surprise rewatching it now. And uh, just the interplay of the characters, the visuals, the the you know, the various ideas they're sort of you know you know popped up there, uh, and I guess it sort of does one of the things that I guess is also maybe you know why I mentioned when we. Uh, uh, covering uh, Snowpiercer, that sometimes it just like yes, this is what the movie's about. We're gonna put a big uh, lampshade on it, and you know, if you're not paying attention, you miss it. But if you you are, it's like yeah, it's pretty obvious. That's what I think is such this like it's always been this really really strong thing in science fiction, which is you you create a fantastical situation. You say in the future everyone is genetically engineered. That's our thing. This movie is about racism. Did we mention yep. it's about racism? Are you paying attention yet? It's about racism, not genetic engineering. It's just there so you won't get tied up in your predetermined biases. It's about racism. And then exactly. you still get think pieces about how it's about genetic engineering. It's like, guys, you missed the entire point. <sighs> I mean, it's not not about genetic engineering. It's just about not letting your biases be influenced in the way that you're doing science. The uh... Uh, I, I'm I'm just I I'm now thinking about the the callbacks uh, for the Rocky Horror Picture Show. Now, uh, at the end, one of the callbacks that sometimes shows up is you see that little speck of light over there. That's the point. You're not going towards it. You've missed the point of the movie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I saw an article that said that this should be like required viewing for geneticists. Probably not. It, it's I I'm always hesitant to say something should be required viewing, but. I'd still highly recommend it. Yeah, I would definitely recommend it. <laughs> so next week we are back to Star Trekking. Yes, across the universe. Yeah, I'm making jokes because I have no idea what this episode is about. I I um, can't even is Metamorphosis think is the next one. I don't think I've actually seen this one, so Nor have I. The shuttlecraft Galileo makes a forced landing on a world with a single inhabitant, Jillian Corbett, guest Eleanor Danu. Hmm. No All clue. Right. <laughs> People also searched for bread and circuses. I don't know where that goes, but okay. <laughs> <laughs> yep, no no idea. Ninth episode of the second season of the American something. That's as much Wikipedia as Google's showing me right now. <laughs> anyway, we're going to be surprised. We'll figure out what on earth this episode is about next week on Watches of Tomorrow. Next time on Watchers of Tomorrow, Zephyrin Cochrane, I presume. You have been listening to Watchers of Tomorrow, a podcast on science fiction media. Find and follow Watchers of Tomorrow on Podbean, YouTube, Spotify, iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Pocket Cast, Spreader, Digital Podcast, and perhaps many more to come if you enjoy our podcast make sure to subscribe for more and where possible make sure to rate your experience or leave us a review you may find Gepwin on youtube.com slash and twitter at Gepwin. you may find me dr isix on youtube.com slash dr and twitter at isixlp Music is Waveform and Mori's Principle, both by DRKRN. You can also check out the Watchers of Tomorrow Discord channel. 
Make sure to share the experience with your friends, family, enemies, and alien overlords. If you feel you are suffering from transporter syndrome, please be aware that the next time you step off the transporter, that you, that is now, no longer exists.